This is They Create World, episode 15, the story of Chuck E. Cheese. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we are going to investigate something that we may have gone to as kids, or as teenagers. It depends. It is called Chuck E. Cheese. That's right. An uh, establishment that's still around today, here and there, you can still find them, but it's certainly nothing like it was in its glory days when... Every kid who was any kid wanted to go there. I'm sure you've seen the Family Guy episode where they kind of did a riff on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Chuck E. Cheese was an incredibly popular thing kind of in the early 80s when the arcades were just booming, booming. And, of course, after that, the arcade business went through a bit of a downturn and the whole Chuck E. Cheese concept really never survived. But it's it's still hanging on, zombie-like. Zombie-like. When I was a kid, and this is when we used to go to Showbiz Pizza, which is like Chuck E. Cheese, but, well, actually, it mostly is just like Chuck E. Cheese. Except with a far scarier-looking mascot. That Billy Bob thing, I, I don't know about that. That part of the Southern Heritage? Not really. They're from Kansas. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, we would get tokens based off of your grade, and so we would go there. And this was in the early 90s when I used to go there primarily, uh, to the one locally. You said that you went to the actual Chuck E. Cheese? Like twice in my life. Only twice? Yes. No, I never really did that whole circuit. Uh, went to arcades sometimes, of course, but didn't need the scary robots and the terrible pizza to uh, complement my video game playing experiences. Oh, that sounds sad. Not really. I think I was happier for it. I wasn't eating their terrible pizza. Oh, well, okay then. At least you didn't have terrible pizza. <laughs> well, I probably still did. I just didn't have their terrible pizza. Oh. Somehow that makes all the difference. Okay, we'll keep that in mind. So, yeah, obviously if you're a kid or you're in your 20s or 30s or even in your 40s to an extent, you encountered showbiz pizza or Chuck E. Cheese's. Exactly, and they really played quite a role in changing the way the arcade industry worked. That it's really an important milestone in the way arcades functioned. Things like tokens and ball pits and skee-ball, which had existed for decades beforehand, but was really popularized through that. And the idea of targeting a younger audience. None of these were things that were really ever done before Chuck E. Cheese did them. So they really transformed the arcade industry. And this was the originally the brainchild of Nolan Bushnell, right? Sort of. So you do have to go back to Nolan Bushnell, and you have to go back to his love of entertainment. When he was in college being, uh, studying to be an electrical engineer, where he really wanted to work when he got out of college was the Walt Disney Company. Hmm. And he wanted to be an Imagineer, one of those engineers that works on the theme park attractions at the Walt Disney Company. He had no shot at that. They didn't really hire fresh engineering graduates, and his grades weren't really the best in school anyway. So there was really no shot at that. But he never lost that love for trying to combine various entertainment properties into a single attraction. So the root idea definitely goes back to Nolan, though he's not the one that really put the Nuts and Bolts restaurant together. Nolan Bushnell has always been more of a vision guy. Mm -hmm. He'll have a crazy idea. He won't necessarily know how to implement that idea. And he's often relied on the people around him to get from that kind of pie-in-the-sky concept to something practical and workable. And in this case, the person in question was a fellow named Gene Landrum. Gene Landrum. So he was the one who was able to take Nolan Bushnell's idea of, I want an arcade thing geared towards kids. How do we make this happen? Exactly. At the time... You were starting to get the shopping mall arcade thing going. That really started developing in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you had arcade games in bars, in bowling alleys, in certain other facilities like that. But, obviously, the bars are catering to adults. Obviously. 
And the arcades are really catering to teenagers. They became a very fashionable teenage hangout. So, of course, if the teenagers are hanging out there, there's not really a place you want your young kids to be. And we're talking under, like, 12. Right. That kind of age range, preteen. So there really wasn't a venue to bring kids, young kids, to arcade games. Young kids certainly played home consoles. Mm -hmm. It's not like kids were completely unexposed to video games. But you couldn't really get them into kind of arcade spaces. And then you had a parallel thing going on, too, which is that arcades were still in this time frame. And we're talking about 1976 now. Just So this is pre-Space Invaders. This is before... This is way back. This is before video games really blow up. Arcades still have a fairly shady image at this point. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that there are hangouts for delinquents and that they're not the kind of place they're they're dirty they're not well maintained the kids there aren't good kids people well, are... you could see that in the media of the uh, 70s actually mm-hmm. whenever in movies whenever the bad tough crowd thing they're at an arcade absolutely and that image was starting to change we've talked before about aladdin's castle and the way that jules millman created this kind of family-friendly shopping mall space that was well-maintained and forbade smoking and eating and drinking and always had attendance around to make sure that everyone's behaving. Right. So this was starting to change, but it was still in very early days, and many communities still had very strict restrictions on arcade operations. You couldn't have necessarily too many machines in a single location. Really? That's yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason, not the entire reason, but that's part of the reason why the arcade industry had kind of evolved into this bar, pool hall, bowling alley kind of system. Because a bar might have two pinball machines, a jukebox, and a cigarette vending machine, and that would basically be all that they had. And coin-op machines were taxed back then. Mm-hmm. So it could be expensive. They probably still are. I just don't know. So it could be expensive to have too many machines in one place because you have to pay a tax to right. the local government on all of those. And there were still kind of restrictions on operating large numbers of machines in one place because it's the same idea that dogs, other activities that are considered unsavory like strip clubs and casinos and whatnot. There's this idea that if you get a lot of this kind of entertainment together in one place, that's going to attract a lot of people from the wrong crowd. And then they bring in secondary activities like drugs and prostitution and whatnot. Working together, it just creates a bad situation. And, And it just ruins your entire neighborhood. And You know, arcades, it's kind of funny to think of arcades being thought of in the same terms as strip clubs and casinos, but they really really were. I mean, first of all, there had been this kind of, we've talked before about how there was this kind of association with gambling. Mm -hmm. There really wasn't gambling going on in arcades per se, but pinball and slot machines were kind of one and the same in a lot of people's minds. So slot machine's Mm -hmm. a gambling machine, pinball must be a gambling machine, and of course, as we discussed at times, there were pinball gambling machines, which right. made it even worse. Yeah. So you had that kind of image in people's mind that pinball machines are controlled by organized crime and we don't want organized crime in our neighborhood. Then on top of that, even if you've got people that don't buy into that organized crime aspect, there's this idea, well, okay, arcade games, especially, say, video games, which are coming in at this point. What are Who are these really targeted at? Children, teenagers, but still children. And arcades are open all day long. So if an arcade is open at one o'clock in the afternoon, then they must be trying to attract teenagers to the arcade at one o'clock in the afternoon on a weekday when they're supposed to be in school. So arcades are a place where kids play hooky, where the bad kids go. uh, They're usually fairly dark because, of course, you've got all the flashing lights and you've got the monitors on the video games and whatnot. So you want a dimly lit location because that allows you to really pick up the sights uh, much better from the machines. You just try to play, watch anything. And it's really bright out. It's untenable in a lot of cases, especially on... We've gotten a bit better with this technology we have now, especially with LCDs and the backlighting. But think back just even a few years ago where we had some of the first-generation LCDs. Game Boy Advanced. There you go. There's a good (laughs) example right there. CRTs, the old-style tube televisions. All of that stuff has light hitting it, it makes it next to impossible to see it well. 
And plus, there's a, more of a psychological effect. If you've ever been to a casino or an old-style arcade, having that darker atmosphere with all the flashy lights, it's sort of hypnotic. It draws you in that way. And so you lose sense of time. You lose sense of reality, almost. And you just go, yeah, I'm here. I'm doing the game. I'm putting my quarter in. I'm having fun. And who cares if you do, oh, just one more quarter. Oh, just one more quarter. I don't know what time it is. It's still dark. It's always been dark. Keep gaming. That's right. Keep <laughs> gaming. That's exactly right. And so these places are dimly lit. So there's the thought is the bad kids are going to these places. These dimly lit places open in the middle of the day. They're sneaking into the back to have a smoke, you know. Smoking wasn't considered quite as bad in the 70s as it is today, but even back then, the idea of children smoking was not considered a good thing. So mm -hmm. they figure the bad crowd's going there to hide out, to smoke. They'll play some games. And where are they getting the money to play these games that are taking all their quarters? They're probably beating up their other friends. They're probably stealing coins from their parents. They're probably spending their lunch money at the arcade instead of spending it in the cafeteria. These are all mm -hmm. the thoughts that go through the heads of these civic-minded people. So the arcade has a very bad reputation and is often very restricted in what it can do. So you've got these two ideas together. We don't have a good place for children to play games, and it's very hard to get a community to accept an arcade. Hmm. And so the idea was to figure out a way to build large-scale arcades, arcades that have dozens upon dozens of machines. Of course, there are examples of these already in existence, but the idea is to make that even more socially acceptable. So Nolan Bushnell has this kind of vague idea, and I, I don't mean to demean it by calling it vague. I just mean he's not the nuts and bolts guy. He doesn't have the fine details of how to implement it, but he has this grand vision of, I want to achieve this. I want it to, it to have these features. I want there to be animatronics or well, whatever. Well, I'm not even sure he got to the point of the animatronics and whatnot. There, there is some competing memory going on here, I think, mm -hmm. a little bit. Certainly, Nolan has taken credit for huge swaths of the concept. Gene Landrum has also kind of taken credit for certain aspects of the concept. Nolan certainly probably had some vague idea towards mascots. I'm not sure if he had really gotten to animatronics mm -hmm. yet by this point, but he had this costume. He'd had it for several years. It shows up in several Atari publicity photos in the background. Hmm. There's even one where they're doing a groundbreaking on one of their new facilities where it's one of those typical groundbreaking ceremony pictures where everyone's got their shovel and they're mm -hmm. like, look at us, we're breaking ground. And in addition to all the Atari VPs, Someone dressed in this costume is also has one of the shovels and huh. he appears on a rack in Nolan's office in a couple of pictures. So there is this costume floating around. There's again, there's some disagreement over where the costume came from. Both Nolan Bushnell and Joe Keenan, who is president of Atari, have at times claimed to be the one that actually purchased the costume at some convention or show or something. Mm -hmm. But both of them agree that they thought they were purchasing a coyote costume. Really? That's the animal they thought they had. Turns out they purchased a rat. Oh. Oops. <laughs> yeah, it was a rat costume, which isn't necessarily the most appealing of animals and is even less appealing when you're putting rats together with food. Yeah. But that's what they had. So he had this. So Nolan definitely had this idea of incorporating this rat somehow. And he definitely had the idea of doing something uh, involving food. He was thinking a, a whole line of food, though, apparently, according to Gene Landrum. I mean, pizza, sure, but also burgers and fries and a salad bar. You know, kind of a, a full restaurant kind of atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And I think he was also the one that saw that they should try to market games to children because that was a, really an untapped market in the arcade space. Mm -hmm. And he definitely had some ideas percolating for a while. Ted Dabney, the co-founder of Atari, even claims that before Nolan got interested in video games when he discovered Space War at Stanford University, that his first idea, kind of get-rich-quick scheme that he was peddling while they were both still employees of Ampex Corporation, was to do some kind of restaurant incorporating animatronics or animated displays of some kind. Hmm. So there were definitely some ideas swimming around in Nolan Bushnell's head. And once he came up with the kind of very 
bare-bones idea of it, he turned it over to this other guy, Gene Landrum. Gene had been a salesman for uh, quite a few years at this point, and had been a salesman in the electronics industry. And then at the beginning of the 70s, he was brought in by Charlie Spork, the founder of National Semiconductor, one of the very important early chip manufacturing companies, to establish their consumer division. Hmm. which uh, Gene named Novus was the name he gave the division. This was the period of time we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about our console cycles, where all the chip makers were seeing what was going on with some of the very early consumer electronics like digital watches and pocket calculators and desktop calculators and whatnot and decided that they should get involved in the consumer business and not just be manufacturing the silicon, but mm-hmm. also actually packaging it in the consumer product and, and selling it into retailers. And so National got on this kind of bandwagon just like everybody else did, and they brought Gene Landrum in to head the division because he had marketed consumer electronics uh, prior to that. Mm-hmm. And so he spent a few years running that. National got caught in the same boom-bust cycle as everyone else that we talked about before. They They did calculators. They did digital watches, they did video games, the dedicated Pong systems. Okay. And had a dedicated Pong system called the Adversary that actually sold a few hundred thousand units, but they were caught in the same boom-bust cycle as everyone else, and they finally decided that they didn't want to be in consumer electronics anymore, which is what most of the chip companies did. I mean, obviously, Texas Instruments stayed in calculators, Mm -hmm. but most of the rest pretty much got out. And Gene was known through his work uh, with Novus as being a guy that really had his finger on the pulse of what was going on in the consumer electronics world. And so both Fairchild and Atari, when they were putting together their programmable systems, Fairchild's Channel F, which was the very first programmable console, and then Atari with their VCS, Mm -hmm. both companies actually retained Gene as a consultant to write a market analysis report on the programmable console market, what consumers would want in a programmable console and how to sell a programmable console, that kind of thing. So that's how he came to Atari's attention initially was because he did this market study for them in 1976 for the VCS. From that would specifically make him be good to run a arcade effectively. Well, he's a guy that knows what the public wants. Hmm. That's his skill. Arcades, it doesn't matter. I mean, he didn't have any experience with arcades, but he had experience with entertainment properties, and he had experience with understanding how to excite people on technology. Okay, and that's so really... because of his technology experience and the fact that he was able to sell electronics to the population and get them excited about the electronics or figure out which product they were excited about, Nolan thought, okay, here's the guy I want to head my arcade yeah, and at, and at first he was actually going to bring him in to run the consumer division. Hmm. Uh, when Atari established its consumer division, he was going to bring in Gene Landrum to run it. And in fact, a lot of the early consumer division people at Atari were former National Semiconductor employees that hmm. Gene poached. But in the end, when they had this kind of brand new idea, I think Nolan saw in Gene a kindred spirit in terms of somebody who is a visionary. He, he understood the psychology of people well. Mm-hmm. I think he even went on to get, uh, he has a PhD now, and I think that PhD may even be in psychology or related field. Gene oh, Landry. really? Yeah, I can't remember for certain. I could be wrong. So he understood how people thought. That mm-hmm. was kind of his skill. And so when Nolan came up with this idea of doing this arcade, he decided rather than put Gene in charge of the consumer division of Atari, that he'd put him in charge of the restaurant operating division, is what they called it. Hmm. So that's how Gene Landrum got involved. And he very quickly zoomed in on the idea of Disneyland. Hmm. Because his idea was, we need to get kids in. And we need parents and community leaders to see our establishment as something very family-friendly and very safe. And what's more safe and wholesome than Disneyland? Exactly. So he very quickly uh, zoomed in on this idea of creating a miniature Disneyland. That's that's exactly what he called it. Really? That's how you... Mm-hmm. That's how they uh, kind of decided. And, of course, Disney had quite a few animatronic attractions. They have the whole Hall of Presidents thing. Mm-hmm. And they had, I don't know if they still do, but they had the Country Jamboree as well, which is very similar to what the Chuck E. Cheese band 
became, you know, this kind of... You got animatronic playing instruments, but they're not really playing instruments. They're just making emotions and speakers put out music. Sure. So the idea of the animatronics was specifically to capture this very Disney feeling and to be kind of smoke and mirrors to lure people in and be like, see, this is just like Disney. This is safe. This is kid friendly. This is family friendly. The mob doesn't have animatronics, <laughs> animatronic animals in front of their casinos. No. Nope. So that's really what the point of that was. And you want to give them a full entertainment experience. So you, you give them the restaurant angle, too. And he very quickly honed in on pizza. Pizza has several advantages. First of all, it is dirt cheap to make. Hmm. If you're just making a basic pizza, obviously, you can make a very fancy, high-class hoity-toity pizza. But you know, dough, tomato sauce, and cheese, and maybe some kind of cheap meat product. Right. That's dirt cheap. So you can you can make them cheap. You can make a lot of them quickly, and it takes a while to bake. Hmm. So you've got a perfect segue into the arcade. You come in, you order your pizza. Your pizza is going to be ready 20, 30 minutes. Go to the arcade while you wait for your pizza. So there's a flow to it. And the flow was very important. Gene uh, personally designed the first restaurant himself rather than getting a consultant in or, or an expert in because he wanted to make sure that they controlled the flow very carefully, the movement from place to place in the building. And, you know, having pizza was a big part of that because it gives you that need to wait for your food mm -hmm. and have something to do in the meantime. So... His plan was to basically split the business into into thirds. It, it would be one-third an animatronic show kind of business, one-third a food business, one-third an arcade business. Hmm. He kind of gave equal billing to all three. He didn't want any one part to overshadow any other part. Even though kind of the main purpose is to have an arcade, he didn't want to shortchange the other parts of the business because he felt it was all important to bring people in and to make communities comfortable with having a large arcade around. Okay. So that's what he did. He kind of designed this whole flow to this building. They were very careful to keep it kid-friendly. They even he even posted a sign uh, saying, basically, children over... Well, first, I think the original sign said, you know, children over 16 not allowed without an adult. You know, this, this <laughs> idea that, you know, children, you know, this is not for teenagers. And, and originally I think the sign said 16 and then they just, they changed it to say teenagers not allowed. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the idea being that this is not for teenagers. They didn't want the teenage element in there because then you get into all of these problems again with these perceptions of delinquency and smoking and drugs and all of that. Plus, right. Plus, you have the teenagers hassling the younger kids and, you know, you the younger kids. That. Yeah. So even I mean, some of those threats are imagined threats, but certainly teenagers don't want to be hanging out at the same place as kids. So if they end up in the same place as kids. They're going to try to push the kids out. Mm -hmm. and, and you don't want that. So they were very careful not to have teenagers in there and obviously keeping the whole thing family friendly. And to that end as well, I mean, obviously they had video games in there because video games were going to be the main draw because Atari's a video game company. Pinball's big at this time, too. Huge at this time, actually. Solid-state pinball machines. So, of course, there's going to be pinball as well. And then they tried to put in some other things to make it friendly even to younger kids. And that's where they came up with the idea of doing the ball pit, for instance, mm -hmm. is they wanted something that even really young kids could enjoy. And there's a funny story about that. Yeah. Uh, when they first put in the ball pit, the people that were working for Gene, of course, said, we can't do a ball pit. It's a health hazard. Two-year-olds are peeing in this ball pit, which, of course, <laughs> they are. And, you know, that's, that's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't have that. The health department's going to go crazy or whatever. But then Gene came up with the idea. It's like, look, we're a restaurant serving food on a massive scale, which means we have industrial-sized dishwashers. Mm. Those dishwashers aren't running at night. So what we'll do is we'll unload the ball pit every night after we close stick every single ball in our dishwashers and run the dishwashers overnight and then restock the ball pit in the morning. And wow. so that's so that's how they so they would actually wash all the balls every night <laughs> to try I to can mitigate. I only imagine the poor uh, employee that they unload that thing and go we got to go in with a hazmat suit in order to unload the balls and then probably do bleach the uh, liner or something. Yeah, that's that's definitely not a pleasant job. 
plus whatever you have to do, especially if you had to crawl inside the tube system. Yes, exactly, because, of course, they had all the tunnels and whatnot, too. I mean, when Discovery Zone came around kind of in the in the mid-90s or whenever it was, I mean, a lot of what they were doing with all the, the tunnels and the pits and everything, you know, Chuck E. Cheese had done first, mm-hmm. really, because he wanted to get even, you know, younger kids in than the set that would play arcade games. It was important to be inclusive to all children up to, you know, a certain age. So... They brought that in. They also brought in kind of redemption style games. They brought in Ski Ball, and Ski Ball was a game is a game that has a long history. The first Ski Ball lanes came about in the beginning of the twentieth century. But this was really the point that Ski Ball started appearing in arcades in massive numbers was when Chuck E. Cheese kind of led the way. And again, it was just it was another game that provided some variety and was a good game for children and And a bit of skill too because if you can get the full 300 points you get a lot of tickets Mm -hmm. so that was kind of the the chuck e cheese concept and atari opened the first one uh they were called pizza time theaters back then in 1977 that's when the first one opened Mm -hmm. and the chuck e cheese name of course also goes back to this disney idea mick Key Mouse. Chuck E. Cheese. Exactly. And at first they had a rat. Because mm-hmm. I told you they had this costume. This is where it was right. based on. And the rat was Ricky Rat, was what they were going to originally do. And there were a few problems. First of all, they decided they could, their lawyers told them they could not use the name Ricky. Really? Why not? Way too close to Mickey. It's one thing to have Chuck E. sounding a lot like Mick E., it's another thing to have the exact same name with one letter changed. Okay, and so it might be so close that Disney has enough power they'd come after them for... Oh, no, Disney would clearly be able to come after them. A rat named Ricky? Yeah. And a mouse named Mickey? Yeah. No. So they changed it, you know, it's it's easy to pronounce it just Chucky, like Bride of Chucky, where, mm-hmm. where it's one name. But it's really not. It's Chuck mm-hmm. E as the middle initial and then cheese. And, and, I, and that's sort of like, I think I might have flubbed this earlier in the episode. That that's why a lot of people sort of think, it's, oh, let's go to Chuck E. Cheese. Right. Chuck E. Cheese's or something like that. And you don't really fully register in your head that it's first name, middle initial, last name. Mm-hmm. Chuck E. Cheese. And they weren't even called Chuck E. Cheese in the beginning. They were called Pizza Time Theater. Though, obviously, as the mascot got big, they just adopted the name of the mascot. Mm-hmm. And they redesigned the costume because rats and food, even mice and food is a bit, it's pushing it. but rats and food, we no, absolutely not. So they, they redesigned it. They turned it into a hybrid. They didn't turn him into a mouse. They kept a lot of the rat features, but they kind of integrated some mouse features in with the rat features and created this kind of hybrid of a mouse and a rat. And originally they were going to call it Ricky, which didn't work. So then they decided they were going to call it the Big Cheese, but apparently another, I think it was Marriott, was looking to open a chain of restaurants uh, under the name of Big Cheese or something. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't use that because same name and the same business, that's that's a trademark nightmare. So the story's been told a couple of different ways, but the more most common way it's told is that basically Nolan and Joe and Gene and all of them got together and had some beers one day and were just uh, discussing the name while they were having beers. And they kind of came back to this idea of having something similar to Mickey Mouse, but not too similar. Mm-hmm. And so they had this Ricky idea that they'd had previously. They had this big cheese idea that they'd had, and they kind of smashed that all together and you got Chuck E. Cheese. All right. And then the animatronics aspect of it, was done by Atari's kind of advanced R&D group. Atari had an off-site group in Grass Valley, California, called Cyan Engineering. Cyan was responsible for the initial design work on most of Atari's important technology. They were the ones that started many of their arcade boards. They started their vector monitor system. They started the VCS. They started the home computers and what they would do is they would get the proof of concept and the prototypes together, and then Atari's engineers would actually turn that concept into a saleable product. So this was their advanced R&D group, and so this was an important part of this concept starting at Atari, is because since it was a part of Atari, they had access to this advanced R&D group that was doing a lot of things with computers and with 
kind of robotics and whatnot. So Grass Valley did the animatronics, mm-hmm. and their expertise really wasn't in animatronics per se, but they knew electronics, so they did a decent job. And then Gene Landrum found a guy named Harold Goldbranson who actually did then the skin for the animatronics, the costume, so to speak. How they look. Exactly. And so they got this concept kind of all in place over the course of 1976, early 1977. And then they opened the very first one in San Jose, California, right in Silicon Valley, where they already were, in 1977. And it did pretty good business. Uh, it It was a little small, in fact, they found for what they were kind of trying to do. So they ended up opening a second one that was in a much more expansive facility that they could do the flow better. And, and that really took off. And, and I take it the flow that he designed worked pretty well for what they were trying to accomplish. It really did. And uh, what what exactly a little bit more about the details of that flow. Was it you go in, you order the pizza, you play the arcade, and then you sit down and eat while being entertained by the show? That's that's basically how it worked, yes. that That was the primary way of it. I mean, the show... I think went on at kind of set intervals. So it was yeah. possible to come in at a time when just nothing was going on. I know that the I was there twice. One, I was two, so I don't remember that. But I remember the second time I was there, we didn't really see much of the show while we were there, it felt like. I think it's because the show was kind of on a set schedule. So if you mm-hmm. happened to be there when it was going on, great. If not, not. That was pretty much the flow. You would come in, sit down, order your pizza, Maybe the show's going on. Uh, once you get your pizza order in, you go play the games. And they, they had a pretty good ordering system in place. Actually, it's interesting. When they first had the first restaurant coming together, they didn't have an order processing system, a computer order processing system. Mm-hmm. It was basically working like just any other restaurant where, you know, they'd take your order, they'd put the ticket in, you know, the kitchen would be doing its thing. And so the people at the place had no idea when their orders were coming. Which was kind of bad. And it was actually Nolan's former Atari partner, Ted Dabney, who by this time was long gone from the company, who told Nolan, it's like, you got to have a, an order tracking system for the people to see when their pizza's going to be up. And Nolan was then like, well, okay, then why don't you build one for me? Mm-hmm. And so he did. And so they had a, a very nice order tracking system where it would display on a monitor, you know, your order would go in and then would display on a monitor the status of your order and this was all very sophisticated stuff for 1977. Nowadays, it's much more common, obviously. Right, but that's a good thing to have, especially if you're trying to corral a bunch, as a parent, trying to corral a bunch of kids. Okay, I don't know whether or not I need to give you another dollar to go out there and play some more games if we're going to be eating and if the pizza's going to be delivered in the next five minutes. Right. So it, having that available for the adults to look up and go, oh, it's still going to be another... 10 minutes because it just entered the oven here have another few quarters go play another few rounds of whatever and exactly. come back here in five minutes exactly so they had a sophisticated order tracking system which worked out very well for them and the first couple locations were very successful but warner atari's parent company really didn't want anything to do with it warner was an entertainment company records movies now video games with atari they did not see themselves as a restaurant company they did mm. not want to be in the restaurant business so they really fought Nolan's plans to kind of expand the company further, or expand the operation further. Mm-hmm. And this came to a head when Nolan was forced out of the company, which had nothing to do with Chuck E. Cheese or Pizza Time Theater. It had to do with other issues. But Nolan was forced out of the company at the end of 1978 because he was having disagreements with the Warner board. And at that time, he asked if he could buy the Pizza Time Theater operation from Warner. And Warner didn't want this. Mm-hmm. So they were like, sure. I mean, they gave it to him for a song. Mm-hmm. And so Nolan, when he left Atari at the end of 1978, took over this Pizza Time Theater company that was now an independent operation. And Gene came with him. Gene remained president of Pizza Time Theater. And they started kind of aggressively expanding at that point. They decided to do a franchise system primarily. They did go direct in a few of the really big markets. They mm-hmm. did direct ownership. But they decided that through most of the country, they would do a franchise system where individual franchisees would buy a Chuck E. Cheese franchise and then run it themselves on their own P&L, but with giving a certain you know percentage to the franchise owner and getting all of their support stuff from and overall direction from the franchise owner. So they, that's how they kind of expanded across the country. And, you know, it was a pretty big thing. And then the next thing that, that came about that was 
probably the biggest thing that Chuck E. Cheese did for the arcade industry was implementing tokens rather than money for mm. playing games. Tokens have a number of advantages. First of all, you can do deals with tokens, which kinds of entices loyalty. So if somebody gives you a dollar, generally speaking, a token is equivalent to a quarter because that's the standard of currency in an arcade. Typically, yes. Yes. But you could do things like if somebody gives you a dollar, you can give them five tokens for a dollar. A special deal or say... Right, or if they give you a lot of money, you know, then, then they, they save more. So if you're getting five tokens for a dollar and, and you're giving progressive uh, discounts as you go up with bigger denominations of cash, it encourages people to give you a lot of money up front because you're getting a discount on your tokens when you give them a lot of money right. up front. And then, of course, the other thing it does is you're locked in at that point. If you're just putting a quarter in, putting a quarter in, putting a quarter in, then you decide, well, I'm done. I'm going home now. That's fine. But if you've bought a bunch of tokens in advance, put the token in, put the token in, put the token in, well, you're going to play probably through most of those tokens. I mean, you might take a couple home with you. You might take a couple home with you, but I mean, they're worthless now for anything except using in that establishment. Mm -hmm. And I can't be 100% certain that Chuck E. Cheese was the first arcade to ever use tokens it's very very possible that others have used tokens in the past even as far back as the 30s for all i know because the idea of tokens is is nothing new bus tokens and all of that but there's no doubt that tokens were not common before chuck e cheese in arcades Mm -hmm. and that it was really through chuck e cheese using tokens that the idea of tokens started to spread and then as the arcade industry hit difficulty tokens became a more flexible way of trying to lure business back in and and tokens snowballed and so it came to the point where a lot of arcades were using tokens right and pretty much exclusively using tokens exactly and gene got the idea from vegas because he had been down in vegas and tokens are used very commonly in vegas casinos or at least they were at the time for things like slot machines and whatnot so that that's where the idea came from. It's another thing he borrowed from Vegas. So Gene was very good at looking at other similar types of entertainment like Disneyland, like Vegas casinos, and extracting some of the most useful elements out of those and then repackaging them into this kind of kid-friendly concept. And that's what Chuck E. Cheese was. And it was a very successful kind of thing. Or at least it was very successful for a couple of years. <laughs> uh, what about Showbiz Pizza? How does that play in? So... After Chuck E. Cheese hit it big, there were a lot of companies that came in and emulated that model. Most of them are forgotten today. There's one called PJ Pizzazz. Bally, the large pinball and coin-operated game company, created their own chain called Tom Foolery. Hmm. There was even one that had a Rocky and Bullwinkle license that had Rocky and Bullwinkle characters as the mascots. That's pretty funny. And obviously the biggest of those was Showbiz Pizza. That's really the only one anyone remembers today. And the Showbiz Pizza story actually starts with Chuck E. Cheese. Hmm. There's a fellow named Robert Brock. He was the head of a company called Topeka Inn Management, which was one of the largest Holiday Inn franchises in the entire country. Hmm. He owned a string of Holiday Inns in the Midwest. He was based in Topeka, Kansas. And... He saw this Chuck E. Cheese thing starting to take off. And since he was already kind of involved in kind of entertainment facilities, he wanted to get in on the ground floor of this. So when they started offering franchises in 1979, he was one of the very early guys to sign up to do a franchise. And this is another guy like Nolan and Gene that thinks really big. Robert Brock didn't want a Chuck E. Cheese. He wanted to open a couple of hundred Mm. Chuck E. Cheese across the Midwest. He wanted to be a major franchisee of the Chuck E. Cheese business. He really saw potential here. And so he entered into an agreement with Nolan to become this franchisee. And then he ended up, because he's kind of researching this business Mm -hmm. and kind of figuring out how it works, he ends up meeting at, I think, a convention, a very interesting fellow named Aaron Fechter. I'm not sure if it's pronounced Fechter or Fetcher. might be Fetcher. I'm not sure. F-E-C-H-T-E-R. Aaron Fetcher has a very interesting story himself. He was an electrical engineer, an electronics guy that kind of got into the animatronic business completely by accident. And he is the inventor of whack-a-mole. Really? Yes, indeed. 
I would have thought Whack-A-Mole would be before this point. No. Uh, well, I mean, it's a little before 79, but no, it was invented in the 70s. Yeah, it was invented yeah, in the I, 70s. I would think like ba- back in the original arcades, back in the 20s and 30s. No, because it's it really needs the electronics as well. I mean, it's not a pure mechanical game. He saw a game at a at a convention, a Japanese game that had you kind of hitting pop up targets, but didn't work very well. And he created a better version and he sold it along. And there's a lot of controversy. The company that actually owns Whack-A-Mole has claimed forever that Aaron Fetcher did not invent Whack-A-Mole. Mm-hmm. They say he's a liar because the game was brought to them by a couple of other guys that actually brought the game to them. But you see, Aaron Fetcher had made it for this uh, Carney out of Florida who basically cheated him on it and Mm. stole it from him after he had him make it and then took it to this other company. And for years and years and years, the the company that owns the rights to Whack-A-Mole said that that story was simply not true. But just recently, actually, there was a guy that was doing a story on Aaron Fetcher and on the Whack-A-Mole thing and He interviewed the president of the company and got the president of the company to show him the original contract in their archives for the Whack-A-Mole game. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, one of the names on that contract was the guy that Aaron Fetcher says cheated him out of the game. Hmm. So I think it's a true story. And I I think that that's kind of the smoking gun. I mean, that doesn't 100% prove it because it still doesn't prove, but... You know, Aaron Fetcher just happens to say that this guy, you know, did this cheat deal with him. And this guy is the guy that happened to sell the concept on. So I think yeah. it's I think it's true. It has a lot of validity to it. But so he invented Whack-A-Mole, though he never profited from it. And then he got into other animatronic attractions after that. So he was making animatronics. He had created this band called the Rock of Fire Explosion of animatronic you know, music playing guys. Robert Brock saw his stuff and was absolutely blown away by it. Because this stuff was far better than the animatronics at Chuck E. Cheese. Because Atari had some great guys at their Grass Valley facility, but animatronics wasn't what they did. That wasn't how they made their living. Right. It was a side job. So they did a very nice workmanlike job of it. But this Aaron Fetcher guy, he... He really understood how this stuff worked. He was an expert. And so now Brock is thinking... Oh my gosh, this stuff's so much better. This guy's going to make a deal with somebody to do a, a Chuck E. Cheese knockoff. Uh-huh. And they are just going to bury Chuck E. Cheese because they've got better stuff. Their animatronics is better and their other stuff is better. And so he said, well, I don't want to open a 200 Chuck E. Cheese only to have, have them all fail because this guy does something better. Mm. So I'm going to make a deal with this guy and I'm going to start my own company. So now this point is first. Exactly. Now at this point he's already signed a contract, though. A binding contract to be a franchisee. Okay. So there's a lawsuit, and Brock claims that Pizza Time had, had been bad to him and you know he deserved to get out of this contract. And of course Pizza Time says, No, 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 you've signed a contract. You can't suddenly steal our idea and go into competition with us. Yeah. And uh, they ended up settling, and I think the way it worked out is he was able to open showbiz, but he had to give some percentage of his profits to Pizza Time Theater. That so was the settlement. Do it as effectively as a franchise, but you could. Well, no, he was still independent because he he's making com- it's his own stuff, and he's making his complete own ideas. But he basically, it's like he's locked in at had, the "I have to give you money" part of the franchise. But right. You don't have to follow the rules. You don't have to follow all the. Yeah, it's of this his stuff. own separate business. Right. But he was forced to give. Basically, it's the same as in a patent lawsuit where if somebody patents something and then somebody else creates something very similar that violates the patent, they don't necessarily stop that person from marketing that thing. Sometimes you just force them to pay a licensing fee or a royalty on what you produce, and that actually happened in the video game industry with the early Pong systems. We've talked about, in the context of Activision before, the Magnavox Phillips lawsuit. Where they made everyone pay royalties. So it's the same kind of idea. You stole our idea. We're not going to stop you from doing your idea or by from using our idea, but you have to pay us for the privilege. Mm -hmm. That's basically what comes down to. That's why Showbiz Pizza opened. And Showbiz Pizza expanded very rapidly as well on the same model. And then actually, the funny thing is, you know, Chuck E. Cheese still exists today. Right. But the Chuck E. Cheese that exists today is Showbiz Pizza. Huh. The company, Showbiz Pizza. It's not Pizza Time Theater or Chuck E. Cheese. 
It is Showbiz Pizza presents Chuck E. Cheese. And it has, in fact, been that way for decades. When we were kids and there were both Chuck E. Cheese's and Showbiz Pizza's around, Uh those were all owned by Showbiz Pizza. They just decided to keep both brands going. I think out of pride more than anything, because Showbiz was their brand, so you don't want to get rid of Showbiz. But Chuck E. Cheese was the more recognizable brand, so you don't want to get rid of Chuck E. Cheese. So they kept both in operation, but they were not competing franchises. They were owned by the same person, Robert Brock. And then finally, as the business became more and more untenable and the locations just weren't as successful, they finally decided that it was ridiculous to be spending so much money on advertising and product placement and development and design and whatnot. And fighting itself, effectively. Exactly. They're spending money for two things that are almost identical, and they own both of them. And so finally they consolidated under the more well-known name, which was Chuck E. Cheese. But yeah, yeah. today's Chuck E. Cheese is actually Showbiz Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, when I was a kid, we always went to Showbiz Pizza because that was the one that was local here at the time. And right. Then... Yeah, sticking it to the man. Take that, Chuck E. Cheese, except not because it's everyone, you. everyone got paid. That's right. <laughs> so that's that's basically how that happened. As far as why Showbiz Pizza is now Chuck E. Cheese, well, that basically goes back to the the arcade crash that occurred in, in 1982. Now, it's important to remember, we've talked about crashes a lot in the podcast already, mostly mm-hmm. in the context of the console market. It's important to remember that even though the console market and the arcade market crashed at almost the exact same time, these are actually different crashes. The factors that brought these crashes to happen are completely independent of each other. The video game crash, as we think of it, the factors that caused that to happen is completely independent of the stuff that caused the arcade system to crash on itself. It's just coincidence that they both crashed at roughly the same time. That's right, because you're talking about a completely different group of operators and manufacturers. There's a little bit of overlap, but... You've got completely different markets, completely different people selling the product, and even targeting completely different people, since arcades are targeted at the older set and consoles are targeted at children. Chuck E. Cheese, obviously, being an exception to that rule. Right. But there was an arcade industry crash. In the middle of 1982, arcade cabin sales basically ground to a halt, video game sales. There were a lot of factors. We won't really go into those right now because that's really a whole episode. Yeah, that's a whole other episode. But basically, our new game sales ground to a halt. Operators started losing money. Locations started going out of business. And the entire industry was just hit by a shock. Chuck E. Cheese obviously got caught up in that. By this time, the management had really changed. The company went public in, I think, 1981. And Nolan decided that he needed someone with more experience running a company than Gene Landrum to take the company public. Mm. Because... Then you're serving a whole new, you've got a board to deal with. Well, I mean, closely held companies have boards too, but you have a a more consequential board to deal with. You have shareholders to deal with. You have financial analysts to deal with. There's a whole different dimension to running a public company that you just don't have when you're a private company. And Nolan decided that he wanted someone with experience running a more substantial company to take the helm. So Joe Keenan who had been, you may recall from earlier in the episode, the president of Atari, Mm -hmm. and who left the company at about the same time Nolan did, was forced out about that same time, was brought in to run the company. Gene Landrum left the company at that point. He was no longer involved. Nolan was still involved. He remained chairman. Mm -hmm. He was always chairman of it. But Gene was replaced as president by Joe Keenan. A whole new set of managers was brought in, and I don't know as much about this period of the company, because... I've interviewed Gene Landrum, Mm -hmm. but he had obviously left by this point. And I've interviewed Nolan, but Nolan was really not paying close attention to the company at this point. He had kind of gotten very comfortable with being jet-setting rich guy. (laughs) He made a lot of money when he sold Atari, and he got a pretty sweet deal to leave Atari, too. So He's pretty cushy. He's pretty cushy. He's bought a lot of houses. He bought the Folger Mansion, uh, which was a huge mansion. He bought a house in Europe. He had a private jet. He was kind of getting involved with political figures. He was even considering maybe taking his own stab at politics. He never did. But this is Nolan. 
Nolan will focus on one thing for a few years and then he'll find something else that catches his fancy for a few years and he bounces back and forth. One of his engineers, a friend of his, so wasn't even trying to insult him, once said in an interview that Nolan has the attention span of a golden retriever. <laughs> and well, so I, I mean, he's good. You got this kind of guy who comes up with these really good ideas and is able to at least kickstart the stuff going and make sure, give it enough attention that he gets effectively the fire going and then is content to just let it succeed or fail on its own merits. Yes. Depending yeah. on how long it goes and get the money out of it. Yes and no. The problem is that he keeps too much control. He He's always brought in other people to run the companies. I mean, he brought in Joe Keenan to run Atari. He brought Gene Landerman to run Pizza Time. But he never completely divorces himself from running the company either. And he's not very good at sustaining ideas. Atari was successful almost despite him. I, I don't, that, that almost sounds too negative. Without Nolan Bushnell, there would be no Atari. And the video game industry, while it certainly would have eventually developed, would have developed in a completely different way. But after the first couple of years of Atari, he was really kind of holding the company back a little bit. And Pizza Time was successful. But then in Pizza Time, he didn't do a good job necessarily of picking people to run the company for him. And so then Pizza Time ended up not being successful. And he never had a venture as successful even as Pizza Time, again, let alone Atari. He had other ideas, he had other projects, but nothing ever quite works out for him. So he is a man of great vision, but he's not always good at picking the right people or picking the right time to hand off an idea to the right people. Okay. And it turns out in a, with Pizza Time, he picked the perfect guy in the perfect time to hand it off at first mm -hmm. when he brought in Gene Landrum. But then he did make a mistake in perhaps bringing Joe back in, even though Joe was a very competent manager. He was a very big part of Atari's success. He maybe made a mistake bringing him back in and some of the people that, that followed him in. And Nolan was, was basically not watching it. He was flying around on his jet. He had a yacht. He was sailing his yacht you know, with his crew and doing all of these things. And he kind of took the eye off the ball. And the new people brought in didn't really understand the dynamics of the business. That's my understanding. Because mm -hmm. it's kind of a it's kind of a different business. It's really no guidelines for it because it's not really the restaurant business. It's not really the arcade business. It's both. Right. And so you got to treat both of them equally. Exactly. So to to have someone that can a management team that can really understand both aspects of it. That's very difficult. So the management team wasn't necessarily as sharp by this time. Showbiz Pizza was really cutting into them. They did have better animatronics. And in fact, even before Gene left, they were starting to try to figure out ways to differentiate themselves from Showbiz because Showbiz was kicking their butts on animatronics. So they're trying to think what's the next thing they can do. So they actually started an animation division and they were looking into maybe incorporating traditional animation into things. They never really got anywhere with that. Right. But showbiz was a serious threat. So showbiz is cutting into their business. The management people really don't understand this crazy business they're in, which hard to blame them because it's a whole new business. It's brand new. And how are you supposed to, if you're taking in veterans who are have a certain mindset of here is how business is done and you throw them into something that could go against their 10, 15, 20 years of experience that goes against their paradigm, yet that's not the kind of manager you want. You want to actually technically bring in a younger manager who's more pliable and can able to better understand and adapt to how things really are. Sure. And of course, this is always one of the big kind of bugaboos of becoming a public company, because in a startup, it's considered a great thing to have young, visionary guys hacking something together. When you have a publicly traded company, a company that's theoretically matured, stockholders and board members like to see experience. They like to see something that they can say, this person has a track record, because the stock market is all about track record and understanding what's going on. The stock market hates change. They, they hate good change almost as much as they hate bad change. <laughs> Whenever there's a change in the world, the market tends to go down. Even if it turns out that that change, whatever it is, is it doesn't end up being very bad, the market likes consistency. They don't like the unexpected. And so when you have a publicly traded company, experienced managers tend to be valued over young visionary managers because experienced managers have a track record and they're predictable. 
and well, the stock the, market loves predictability. What's the problem? Why bring it public? I mean, if you're if this is a known thing, I don't think this is a new concept to them that, hey, if I take this fledgling system and I bring it public, I'm going to have to follow these norms. Why not just keep it private? At a certain point, going public is the only way to get enough capital to continue to grow your business. It's as simple as that. Okay. Growing a business takes gobs and gobs and gobs of money, and the bigger your business, the more money it takes to grow it even bigger. And at some point, the stock market is the only way to get enough money. Bootstrapping can get you part of the way there. Venture capital funding can get you a little further along the way there. But at the end of the day, you need to be publicly traded to grow any bigger. So some people are content to just stay with a smaller company and they never do go public. But if you're trying to grow and dominate a field, at some point, you just have to go public. There's no way around it. Right. Or, yeah, you either go public and continue to grow or you don't go public and you stay the same size and your competitor who wants to grow more than you do now goes public and buries you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's terrible, and it's, it's... It's almost like a damned if you do, damned if you don't. And it's really bad in the video game industry. This is a tangent, but in order to be creative, uh-huh. you need to take risks. Because when you're being creative, you're doing stuff that no one's ever done before. So in order to be creative, you need to take risks. In order to raise money, you need to be conservative. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked before about the business artistic tension. That's one of our kind of key themes. And this is another example of that. Going public almost always robs a video game company of its creativity and a lot of that specialness that made their games desirable in the first place. But if you don't go public, at a certain point, you're not going to be able to get your games to anybody anymore because you need the money for R&D. You need the money for marketing. You need the money in order to grow things, in order to remain competitive and relevant. Exactly. But then, of course, as soon as you go public, you start taking fewer risks. I mean, there are public companies that do take risks, but generally They're speaking... conservative risks. Yeah. So this is the great kind of trap. And all the video game companies that have been around for a long time have gone through this and have gone to that point where they've had to decide, do I go public? Do I stay private? Do I sell out to another company because I don't see a way forward for staying independent? Every video game company that is around long enough or gets big enough reaches the point where they have to make that decision. And for every Electronic Arts and Activision that has succeeded after going public, you have a Microprose or a Maxis that completely and utterly fails when they go public. It's a terrible point, and it's so contradictory. A computer game or a video game company that goes public is automatically, in many ways, a less interesting and a less capable company than a video game company that remains private. But a video game company that remains private just doesn't have a way forward unless you're like Valve and you completely reinvent digital distribution on the PC so you have like gobs of your own cash because you control the PC distribution infrastructure. Well, I get that the only way you can do it is that if you are a company like that is that you have to change the paradigm in some way that makes it so that you can get a lot of money without having to rely on the stock market. And it's almost impossible. I mean, a couple of companies have done it. They've done it. Epic did it by becoming the king of middleware, making the Unreal Engine Mm -hmm. ubiquitous in game development. So there are a couple of independent developers that are able to hold on because they found alternate means to bring in gobs and gobs of money. But But they're the exception, not the rule. Exactly. They are the exception. So that's so that's the pizza time dilemma is they had to go public to keep growing. But as soon as they went public, they replaced the managers that had been successful in making the company successful in the first place and brought in people that didn't necessarily understand the business. At the same time, they have a fierce competitor breathing down their neck. And oh, by the way, those arcade games that everyone used to love playing, they're not playing so much anymore. So fewer people are coming to arcades. Yep. And uh, so that left them with the very scary proposition of having to attract people in to eat the pizza. <laughs> Which we've already said wasn't necessarily the best pizza in the world. You don't go to Chuck E. Cheese to eat the pizza. And they knew this. They weren't idiots. They didn't think they had a great pizza product. But their business 
was predicated on high volume. All arcade businesses are. If mm-hmm. you have an arcade, you only make money if you get a lot of people through your doors and get them spending a lot of cash in your machines in a short period of time. And even though they had this restaurant component, they were still at their heart an arcade business. So you need lots of people coming in. If you have lots of people coming in, you have to make lots of pizzas. Mm-hmm. If you have to make lots of pizzas, you cannot make each one of them a special little snowflake. No, mm. this is an assembly line. You're churning them out, churning them out, churning them out. And because the food is really the loss leader for your arcade, which is where you make your real money, you can't spend a lot of money on quality ingredients. Mm-hmm. So you have you have no time to make a good pizza. You have no money to make a good pizza. You're just shoving the pizzas out. The pizzas are window dressing. They're an excuse. So they knew they had bad pizza, but it didn't matter. That wasn't their business. Right. Well, of course, once arcades start collapsing, kind of in a way has to be their business. <laughs> Almost by necessity. And they don't make good pizza. So no one's coming to Chuck E. Cheese to eat. Yeah. Now no one's coming to Chuck E. Cheese to play games. So the company hits uh, a real rough patch. And I mean, showbiz hits a rough p- patch, too. Showbiz is getting to the point where they're starting to feel the pinch because mm-hmm. arcades are just doing poorly. But showbiz is still doing just that teensy-weensy bit better than Chucky is. Mm-hmm. And so in 1984, Showbiz Pizza buys Chuck E. Cheese, which at this point had entered bankruptcy. Chuck E. Cheese had entered bankruptcy. And so they figured, buy it. Exactly. And then Showbiz was able to hang on because arcades didn't go away entirely. And then, of course, arcades did start to make a comeback. And, and arcades even started going more to things like tokens, mm-hmm. which Chuck E. Cheese and Showbiz were doing. They went more to redemption games. Games like Skee-Ball or Whack-A-Mole or whatnot became more pervasive even in regular arcades. So there was enough of a business still going on, and they were aligned well enough with the business that it didn't die. They mm-hmm. were no longer in the same big, flashy locations. You were just as likely to find them in a boring strip mall on some yeah. random street. than in yeah, a- the one I went to was in a strip mall. Yeah. So they didn't have the pizzazz they had had before, and they didn't have the cachet, and they weren't bringing in the same number of people, but there was enough business that one company that severely scaled back its operations should, could survive. And so Chuck E. Cheese is still around today, but they haven't been relevant since the crash of the arcade industry. They're just kind of there. They're not trendsetters. They're not tastemakers. But really... You see them out of the corner of your eye as you're going to lunch, and you go, oh, I remember going there once. I wonder why there's no cars parked in front of it. (laughs) That's right. But really, the way they started pushing arcade games to a younger demographic, the way they started introducing redemption games like skee-ball into the arcade, the way that they introduced tokens to the arcade, even the way that they combined food and arcade games in a similar vein to what a place like Dave & Buster's would do later with just a more adult pairing in all the ways that they innovated in the arcade space they really were a significant force and arcades in the 80s and 90s and beyond would have not been the same without chuck e cheese well so at the very least we can thank them for helping to innovate and advance the industry such as it is absolutely Alrighty. uh anything else you want to cover i think that pretty well does it All right, what are we going to do next time? Well, we've been in the console space for a while. We've checked in with the arcades again, so I think we should probably go back to home computer market. The home computer market. That's right, and kind of discuss the way that the computer game industry, in very broad terms, initially developed. Because in 1975, you kind of had the first... I don't want to say widespread because it wasn't widespread. But, and I don't want to say mainstream because it wasn't mainstream. But kind of the first Proto. personal computer that attracted any attention amongst hackers and hobbyists, the Altair. And in 1977, you had the so-called Trinity, the Commodore PET, the Apple II, and the TRS-80. And around that time, of course, people started developing games for these systems. And it's kind of interesting to see how you had these competing platforms and how the games were kind of tailored to the capabilities of the platforms of the time and 
how the games played a big role and how these platforms grew or didn't grow, as the case may be, mm -hmm. and just kind of explore how we got from these very few little hackers and, and hobbyists tinkering and trading programs and magazines and whatnot to something approaching a viable computer game industry within about a five-year or so period. All right. Well, we will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolam Music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.